Just in case you have not been with us, maybe the last few weeks, in our travels through the book of Revelation, Revelation 5 is a really pivotal passage. And the entire flow, the entire narrative of the book, mainly because of what John has just witnessed take place in heaven. Like John sees something in a future heavenly realm that sets the stage for really the rest of the book. Let me just read it for you in case you weren't with us. Revelation 5, beginning with verse 6. John says that I looked and behold in the midst of the throne. This is the throne of God. And of the four living creatures, these creatures that are surrounding the throne of God. And in the midst of the elders who are on these thrones also there in the throne room. John says, stood a lamb. We know this to be Jesus. As though he had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which speaks to his absolute power and his absolute knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And then John sees this, and this is important. He sees Jesus come and take the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. In this future scene, John witnesses the very moment when time had come to initiate the final act of God's will, his plan, his testament for the earth. A plan, you should keep in mind, conceived before the foundations of this world, but sealed up by God in this scroll, is now about to come to fruition, its ultimate fulfillment. With the church now removed from the earth, safe in heaven, God's attention will turn now towards finishing his future dealings with Israel. We know that prophetically. Judging the world of her sin and rebellion. And in the end, when it's all said and done, ushering in a new kingdom. A kingdom founded on peace and tranquility. A kingdom unlike anything of this earth, for it comes from heaven. And it has Jesus the King ruling the realm. Now, beginning in Revelation 6 and continuing, really all the way until chapter 19, John is going to document a period of time we know to be, theologically, as really several different titles. This period of time is known in some circles as Daniel's 70th week. You might hear heard it mentioned that way. Uh, you'll also find it mentioned as, as, Daniel's, uh, as, as Jacob's time of trouble. You might hear it called the end times or the great tribulation. According to Daniel 9, we do know that these seven years begin. There's no debating how these seven years begin. They begin with the Antichrist, this future world leader, signing a covenant, a peace with Israel. We also know how these seven years will conclude. With Jesus coming to establish his kingdom and the final great battle of Armageddon. We also know, according to the, the prophecies of Daniel, that at the halfway marks, so we know the beginning, we know the end, at the middle, th there will be this event known as the abomination of desolation, when the Antichrist goes into a future Jewish temple and declares himself to be God. Now, between these bookends, John describes for us in these chapters a series of three judgments being initiated by specific occurrences taking place in heaven. Jesus will loose... The seven seals of the scroll he's just taken. With the seventh seal, there are then seven angels who blow out seven trumpets, initiating more judgments. With the seventh trumpet, seven more angels come upon the stage, and they pour out these bowls, the bowls of God's wrath. 
And with each of these actions in heaven, things John sees in heaven, he then records for us in these chapters, reciprocating cataclysmic events coinciding on the earth. Now, as we work our way through these next 14 chapters, again, there are a few things to keep in mind. While there is a chronology to the events that John is witnessing in the throne room of heaven, the truth is that John's sense of time and even space is much different than ours. Like, not only will John, as we'll see, go back and forth from heaven to earth, watching these things play out over a seven-year time period, but at various points in the narrative, John will actually even just take a break from what he's saying, take a break from the descriptions, in order to kind of go back into the narrative and provide for us some additional details, or, or even elaborate on some of the more significant developments. Not only is it entirely possible for a series of chronological events occurring in heaven to play out and even overlap in non-chronological ways on earth, I believe it's likely, and kind of helps provide a little clarity to the book itself. Yes, there is a chronology to John's revelation, but keep in mind that the chronology is likely three-dimensional and not exactly linear. Now, before we dive into chapter 6, it's also important that you know one of the great aids or the tools that we should use when it comes to trying to understand much of what John is witnessing in context to this particular chapter is that you need to read it and then understand it, interpret it, and the context of a sermon that Jesus gave on the end times, known as the Olivet Discourse. It's a sermon he gave on the Mount of Olives, which is why it's the discourse from Mount Olivet. On your own, you can read the sermon in its entirety. It's found in three different places in the gospel narratives. You can find it beginning in Matthew chapter 24. You can find it in Luke 21. And you can also find it in Mark 13. Now what's noteworthy and relevant for our purposes this morning is that in this discourse given by Jesus, in this discourse, he establishes for us an outline for the way things play out during these seven years. And it's not a coincidence, mind you, that John's revelation and specifically these sealed judgments we'll look at this morning, perfectly follow suit to the outline provided by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Consistent with what the prophecies of Daniel document, Jesus affirms for us that this final act of God's plan for the world, yes, Jesus takes the scroll, yes, it requires Jesus initiating the plan, but the first stage, the first step will begin it all begins with a great deception by an even greater deceiver. Again, what Daniel says, confirmed by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse, is that the Antichrist will come upon the world stage sometime in the future, and he'll promise to bring about to the world, likely in turmoil, a lasting peace. In turn, he'll be seen and accepted by the Jewish people as being their long-awaited Messiah, and we're off and running. Let's dive into Revelation 6, beginning with verse 1, John says, Now I, I saw, and keep in mind, there's no chapter and verse breaks in the original manuscript. Those things have been added uh, for context, for references. And so what John is relaying for us, there isn't, there isn't a, a break in the action. He's going right along with the flow of the things he's already been talking about in chapter 5. He's moving right along. He says, Now I saw, in the context of what he's been seeing, this lamb, the lamb, Jesus, 
opens one of the seals. The first seal. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud, with a voice like thunder, so it was loud, booming, authoritative. He says, come and see. I would imagine that if such an angel tells you to come and see, you're going to come and see (laughs) what he's telling you to witness. And John says, I looked and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the first thing that John notices of the Antichrist is that he rode upon a white horse. Now, tragically, there are some scholars that mistakenly believe that this is a reference to Jesus. Why? Well, because later in the book, you'll find Jesus coming to earth on what? Riding a a white horse. So the assumption is that, well, this must be Jesus. It's not Jesus, but you're close. It's it's a fake of Jesus. It's an imposter to Jesus. It's It's a poser. You see, this man is what we call the Antichrist. Not meaning he's somehow antithetical to Jesus, but he presents himself as a replacement to Jesus. He's not anti-Jesus, he's seeking to replace Jesus in this world as a savior. You know, in response to the disciples' original question that kind of sets into motion the sermon, the Olivet Discourse, the disciples say, they say, what will be, Jesus, the sign of your coming? So they're already cons- interested about his second coming. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so Jesus then begins the Olivet Discourse by, with a warning, really, to Israel. He says, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And the time has drawn near and will deceive many. Therefore, do not go after them. Sadly, though, in response to their continued rejection of Jesus as their Messiah, the day will come in the future when God allows the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, to be deceived by a deceiver. That the nation will accept this man, this Antichrist, this Savior, who is nothing but an imposter. You should also keep in mind, and this kind of, I think, goes without saying, you know, only heroes ride white horses. Like it's the good guys in the movie on the white horse. And never the villains, right? Like, for example, the Lone Ranger. The Lone Ranger rode a brilliant white stallion named, anyone, anyone know? Silver. Hi-ho, silver away, right? It, yes, it dates me, but I enjoyed the Lone Ranger. You see, the purposes here behind John's description of the Antichrist riding on a white horse was to emphasize the reality that he doesn't stride upon the world stage as a villain. and In fact, it's the opposite. He's a star. He's a hero. Like his popularity, the polling, will be off the charts. Like no one's going to be like, that's the Antichrist. Quite the contrary. Like the man will be brilliant. He'll be dynamic and eloquent. His character, unassailable. He'll be the leader that the world has been waiting for, craving, And he'll present and market himself as such. You know, regarding the Antichrist, we know that there'll there'll be some type of a, a magnetism. A magnetism to his personality. He'll have a charisma and a charm. So much so that the entire world will endear themselves to this man. It's not unlike Lucifer. You know, 
the devil never really presents himself as he is, does he? He presents himself as he wants you to perceive. Like, Satan conceals, doesn't he? And he protects who he really is by manifesting, what does the Bible tell us? As an angel of light. Like, it's not as though Satan is, you know, a red creature with horns and a, and a tail carrying around a pitchfork. A, you would identify him very quickly. Like, oh, that's Satan. Like, no, no, no. Satan disguises and he conceals from view his true intention, his true purposes. And the Antichrist will be in much the same way. Like, you could argue that there will not be a living soul on earth who could ever have imagined the evil that actually existed in the soul of this man. John says in turn, because of his charm and his charisma and his personality, that the world... The world gives him a crown. In light of the prophecies of Daniel, we know this man will, will be a leader. Specifically, of what is likely to be a revived Roman Empire. A coalition, a coalition of what will be ten European nations will grant this man power and authority. This is illustrated in the fact that he's on a, on a white horse with what? He's got a bow. So he's been given authority. He's been given a power. John says the Antichrist is also not an idle man. He's given power. He's given this crown. He's given a bow. And what does he do? He uses them, doesn't he? In fact, he wages war, we're told by John, to conquer those that have failed to fall in line. And he proves successful. That's what this phrase that he went out conquering and to conquer. He went to conquer and he conquered. Let's continue verse 3. And when he, again Jesus, opened the second seal of the scroll, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out. And it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth, and that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Again, it's in light of, of what we're about to get into. You need to keep in mind. It's a good reminder that with each seal, so as Jesus loses each seal of the scroll, we find, right, a judgment happening on earth. But, but you need to always remember that it's not just a judgment. It's God's judgment. It is a judgment of God. Like what happens occurs via the direct involvement of Jesus. So what happens on the earth is initiated by Jesus, knowing what he's going to initiate. Like Jesus, while the world might not be aware, is actually the one behind the scenes pulling the strings to the affairs of the planet. Yes, this Antichrist rises to power. Why? Because Jesus has allowed him to ride to power. And then we see the second horse. Why? Because Jesus is the one that initiates this thing in sequence. Like global war, which is what's being described here, is not a coincidence, but a divine intervention. You know, Jesus would tell his disciples that during this time of what will be a promised peace, he says that, quote, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Like with the opening of the second seal, this reality is confirmed again by what John is witnessing. In spite of the Antichrist's promise of peace, peace in our time, John records how after him another horse follows, this time fiery red. Red being symbolic of war, bloodshed. With the one 
who, was sat, sat, who sat on it granted authority. And what does he do? There was a promise to peace that the second horse follows, and it takes peace from the earth. God does not allow peace. He intervenes. With this man at the center of European dominance, and again, according to other prophetic utterances, somehow probably ruling the world, through kind of a four-headed, unique federation of states. Again, all this is described specifically in Daniel. But this man's reign, the Antichrist's reign, will face resistance. And his alliances will prove to be very fragile. Again, why? Because God forbids peace. As such, we know that these seven years will be characterized by wars, and continual conflict on the earth. Yeah, it's sobering to consider, but to say that our world is sitting presently upon a powder keg would kind of be an understatement. You know, following the Second World War, the nations of our planet have spent more money on military budgets and weaponry than virtually anything else. Like, it's been estimated that if we were to just redirect the spending of the world towards military, for one year, we could eradicate global hunger. Like, that's how much money the world spends on the military. In 2019, $1.92 trillion was spent globally on military development. With the United States accounting for roughly 38% of the total, $732 billion is what we spent in 2019. The second nation on the list is China, having only spent $261 billion. The United States spends more money than anybody else, by far, on weaponry. It's also worth pointing out that since 2010, military spending in the Asia-Pacific has increased 165%. In the Middle East, in Africa, it's increased 94%. And it's uh, increased 49% in Latin America. Like, it seems as though, I'm not a prophet, that the world is arming up for a conflict that maybe John sees happening with the opening of this second seal. Verse 5. When Jesus opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, come and see. So I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. In Roman times, scales were an, a tool that you would use in order to kind of practically measure out what something was worth. John says, I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. In, in ancient times, a quart of wheat was akin to the portion of food that could satisfy the normal man for one day. Three quarts of barley was the normal daily ration given to a Roman citizen who happened to be living in an area suffering a great famine. If you take into account that a denarius was basically a day's wage. Like the economic global conditions that John's seeing with this third horse are bleak. 
And one of the great strategies envisioned and implemented by our elites following, again, World War II, I mean, you had two world wars in the span of 40 years. Like, they wanted to achieve a lasting peace. They wanted to keep these things from happening again. And so what was envisioned, crafted, imagined, is that we can keep that and still peace through mutually shared economic destruction. Like the reason that today we have a global economy that's intricately weaved together through a series of backroom deals governed by just a handful of multinational banks was to ensure that every nation on earth was both vested in the debts and holdings of everybody else. Like it's why the crash, crashing of the Greek economy in 2008 triggered and set into motion events that almost led to a global depression. It'd be very difficult for China to wage war on America or America to wage war on China because our economies are absolutely tethered together. They're intertwined. And it was envisioned that way. You start a war, your economies fold. And everybody else's do as well. As John is seeing these horsemen, you know, traditionally called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. This is the, the origins of it. It wasn't a, a football reference. But as John is watching the, the consequences of war here, with, this, with the second seal, he sees a world plunged into some form of economic collapse. And additionally, you can, you can imagine that there would have been famine as a consequence. It, it seems that that's what John is seeing here. Famine and economic problems. Like not only does John see in this third judgment a day's wage, only able to buy you the ingredients to make one loaf of bread, yet alone anything else. Like the scarcity here. Could this be from hyperinflation? Could it be a currency devaluation? Could the scarcity of food itself lead to the increase of price? We don't know the particulars, but we do know that the necessities for living during this time period as a result of these things grow scant. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus says that following these wars, he says, quote, there will be famines as well as what he calls, quote, pestilence. In the Greek, the word that we have translated as famines literally means there, there will be a shortage to the harvest. That, that's what is implied. You know, years ago, as small farms transitioned to being family-owned and operated, to being bought out by large multinational corporations. You know the type of seed that's used today to grow our food? Started being genetically modified and produced like big companies like Monsanto. They genetically modified the seed that produces our food so that it would be resistant to bugs and funguses and drought, etc. Novel idea. Sounds nice. But the problem is that in order to increase production and minimize risk, the trade-off is that the vast majority of the seed used today to grow our food is completely and utterly sterile. Like, like what this means is that one year's harvest is no longer able to lead to the following year's crop in case of some type of, of war or emergency. Like every year, we have to rely as a globe on massive corporations for our food supply who in turn have to rely 
on the purchasing of new seed from other massive conglomerates. You like that dynamic? You see, it's easy to imagine, isn't it, how a global war in these conditions would easily lead, right, to global famine, scarcity of food. But aside from famine, Jesus also uses another interesting word of, of what would come. He uses the word pestilence. Now in Acts chapter 24, this Greek word is translated a different way, I think, gives it clarity. Pestilence is the same word you can translate into English as a plague. Like Vine's expository dictionary defines the word as being, quote, a deadly, infectious disease. Like considering that we find ourselves <laughs> living through a global pandemic wreaking havoc on the world's economy with an infinitesimal fatality per infection rate. Just imagine what the effects would be if, let's say, a similar lab-created, highly infectious virus was released onto the world that possessed a fatality rate north of 10%. What would the world look like? Now, this unknown voice that calls to John from the midst of the four living creatures, the voice he hears, also instructs the, the rider of the black horse he says, do not harm the oil and the wine. That's, that's interesting to me. Don't harm the oil and the wine. You know, things are bad, right, with this third horse. You got a, a, a deceiver. And then it plunges the world into war. And from war, we have famine. We have economic collapse. Like, it's bad. Bad. And yet the idea that that there's this instruction to protect the oil and the wine, it, it lends to the idea that, yes, while things are bleak and terrible, <laughs> they could have been worse. At least we got wine. And we still got some oil. I mean, how are you going to even make bread at all with the wheat if there's no oil? Yeah, I know this is a simple little detail kind of, kind of tucked in, but I see here a little bit of God's grace in the midst of judgment. Like he supernaturally instructs this horseman, you can wreak havoc on a lot, but I'm going to restrain you on something. Don't mess with the oil and the wine. Keep that separate. Verse 7, And when Jesus opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come and see. So I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now that word pale, it's a little, eh, it's a little weak in its translation. The word pale here actually if you're trying to, to put a color to it, it's more of a, this doesn't help, but kind of like a greenish yellow of throw up. Like that's kind of, that's kind of what we're, it's a, it's a sick horse. It's sick. It's green and yellow. It's been on a boat for too long, right? Sick. And the name of him who sat on this horse was death. And Hades, or, or better translated hell, followed him so this rider death's got an interesting companion and power was given to them both death and hades over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword to kill with hunger to kill with death and to kill by the beasts of the earth over a fourth of the earth death you know it would appear that this pale horse carries with him kind of the natural effects, the natural manifestations of the three previous judgments. 
because of these wars and uh, the world economy being in ruin and the famine that results, making life difficult on earth, making, uh, uh, getting the necessities of living hard. <laughs> also, probably one of the scariest parts of all this, turning beast against master. If you don't have enough food to feed yourself, you're not also feeding Fido. Fido gets upset about that at some point. Again, to kill by beasts of the earth, there's a scarcity. <laughs> Throw in an infectious disease. John tells us that as a result of all of these things, a fourth of the earth dies. Again, this is a future scenario, but let's say we just round up using normal population curves to, by this point, there's 8 billion people on the earth. One quarter would equate to an astounding 2 billion people dying from these judgments. Like for a little context, because it's just big numbers, right? Like that would be the equivalent to every single person in North, Central, and South America dying. Gone. Because of what's happening in these wars. Like there's no doubt that this fourth horse has the name Death. And following him came his buddy Hell. Because that's what the world is by this point. You know what's really daunting about the effects of these four horsemen is that, again, in his Olivet Discourse, these things tracking right along, you know, at this point, you know how Jesus describes it all? He describes these things as being, quote, the beginning of sorrows. Like, in fact, in Matthew 24, verse 22, he says of the great tribulation that would follow, he says, quote, that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved at all. Like, you see, as bad as things have gotten at this point... <laughs> they're going to get much, much worse. Like under the reign of the Antichrist, this fake savior that everyone rallies around, that God gives them. You've rejected me? Well, follow him. And you know what results? He promises peace. There is no peace. He promises life and vitality and success. It doesn't come. Everything this man promises, it all blows up in the world's face. It gets bad and worse and even worser. The world is given a small taste of hell. You want to live apart from me? Well, that will ultimately result in hell. So let me do this. Before I send you there, let me give you a, a test, a taste. Why don't you live in hell a little bit? Then you tell me if you want to be there forever. It's not surprising we'll see great revival happening as well. We'll get to that in a few chapters. Verse 9. And when Jesus opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony of which they held. You know, instead of an, an invitation by one of these four living creatures to come and see what was happening on earth, and that's been the pattern up to this point, with the opening of this fifth seal by Jesus, John notices immediately this brand new detail concerning the throne room of heaven that he hadn't seen before this moment in time. Again, in chapters 4 and 5, he gives us this great description. This isn't there, so now it's been introduced. John says he sees under, under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now, now, in order to unpack what it is that John's describing for us, it's important I point out that, that what, he ends up being what, what he describes, he'll describe again the same group, at the end of chapter 7. So I don't want to get up too far ahead, but it does give us some context. 
At the end of chapter 7, the same group is described as being a great multitude, which no one could number, standing before the throne of God, serving Him day and night. Which gives us some context to what he's seeing now. Like this reference that we have of souls. Like, like you'll hear pastors and commentators, you know, as they work through a passage, talk about what these bodiless souls look like. I think that that's kind of a poor interpretation. Like the soul here, because we're already told that, that, that this group of people are described as a multitude, they're described as people, they're described standing before the throne of God. It's hard to stand anywhere if you're a soul, you would think. Without a body, how are you standing? Like this group of people, when John says, I see the souls of those under the altar, he's, he's not describing men and women awaiting a physical body. Aside from that, this phrase, under the altar, I don't think should be taken literally either. Like the only altar that we know of in heaven is the altar of incense. Like we looked at that last week. The altar of incense, which is the, the prayers of the saints continually going but, you know, before the, the, the throne of God, the sweet-smelling aroma that the Lord enjoys. This phrase, under the altar, I, I believe more accurately should be seen as, as really a symbolic way of John saying that this group of people, these men and women, they were there because of the altar. They had sacrificially laid down their lives. Like The one thing I can say is there isn't, according to the Old Testament picture of heaven, the, the, the altar for burnt offering, there is not that altar in heaven because there's no need for such an altar at all. You see, since Calvary, no one needs to make a sacrifice for there to be an altar. It's obsolete. It's insignificant. It doesn't, it's not needed. So it's not the altar for sacrifice, but it's describing those who have been sacrificed, these men and women. Like, broadly speaking, it's safe to say that these souls were the men and women who had come to faith in Jesus Christ sometime after the rapture of the church and who find themselves being martyred during these seven years of tribulation. While in chapter 6, John simply tells us, look at it, it's amazing, that they had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony for which they held, in chapter 7, verse 14, we're told explicitly, these are the ones who come out of great tribulation. And it's not just like a great tribulation, but the great tribulation. It's the tribulation of tribulations if you actually get into the original language. A unique tribulation. We'll talk about them a little bit more later. John adds, verse 10, he says, They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said of them that they should rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Again, we'll talk about these martyrs in more detail next Sunday in chapter 7. But please know, and I, this is important, the motivation here for them crying out, right? is not to somehow seek to compel God to enact revenge on those who've done them harm. I don't believe that's what's happening here. Like Instead, I see their appeal as being more motivated by a desire to see God put an end to this persecution. Why? Out of their love for, quote, their fellow brethren still living on earth 
facing what they've just endured. It's like, Lord, how long is this going to continue? We've got loved ones, and my wife is in there. And like, I know people, and, and I've gone through this, but they're still there. How long is this going to continue? Because it would be great if it stopped soon for their sake, right? Notice God's response to their petition. John says that a white robe was given to them. So they cry out, and in response, God hooks them up with some digs. A white robe. You know, while the fact that this robe is white implies that there's this inherent righteousness and purity that God is clothing them in, right? The, the Greek word that we have here for robe, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Now, admittedly, I might have spent way more time researching this one word than I should have. And I might spend more time talking about this robe than you're inclined to appreciate. I don't care. See, within the book of Revelation, this particular white robe, the word robe, you'll only find it. It's, it's only reserved for these martyred saints coming out of the Great Tribulation. This is not a, a robe that you and I get, which is a bummer. I'd like that robe. It's a cool-looking robe, I can imagine. Fluffy, feathery. I don't know. That's what I would want mine to look like. It's only reserved. The only time you find this word, this is, this is something unique. It's special. Not only is it unique in the context of the book of Revelation itself, only being reserved for these martyred saints, but in the New Testament as, as a whole, this type of robe only makes four appearances. And yes, I'm going to tell you all four. There are two occasions that this word is used to describe the long, ornate robes worn by the pompous scribes. You'll find this in Mark 12 and Luke 20. There's one instance where we're told the angel that had been sent to notify the women at the tomb of Jesus' resurrection was clothed in a long, white robe. Same word, Mark 16. It's the fourth time this word is used in the New Testament, I think provides the greatest insight to its meaning and significance. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus records the story of a prodigal. A son who had taken his inheritance and gone into the world and squandered it. He ruined his life and he decided, once he hit rock bottom, that being a servant in his father's house was better than where he was. So he humbles himself and he comes home. And we're told, I'll, let me read you a section, that when the prodigal son arose and came to his father, when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer to be called your son. The father ignores him. <laughs> and he turns to his servants and he says, this is what he says, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. This is the fourth time we find this robe. Like, keep in mind, a component to these martyred saints, you've got to remember. They had been left behind. Why? Because they had rejected Jesus. They had ignored the witnesses of their friends and the witnesses of their family. 
They had resisted that internal wooing of the Holy Spirit when they're, when they're convicted of sin, when, when they're stirred. And then one day in these people's lives, something incredible happens. Something that they thought was a pipe dream. Something psychedelic. Everyone that had been witnessing to them, their friends and their family and the church, they had been coming occasionally. Boom! Gone. The rapture and the twinkling of an eye. And to their great surprise, they now find themselves entering into a world they had been warned about. They find themselves in great tribulation. Now, to their immense credit, what happened with these people? We can say with certainty. I'm sure there were tears and they were freaking out. But they humbled themselves. A humbling occurred. And against what would probably be great odds and very real persecution, these folks had not only accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but they had been willing to do what? Not just live for Jesus, but they had been willing to die for Him. They had been willing to lay down their lives onto the altar of sacrifice for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. To me, how glorious that when they arrive home to heaven, the prodigal is greeted with the father and given a white robe. I love it. After clothe, clothing them in this special garment, this garment of faithfulness, John also records how it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer. You notice that. Like the idea here is not that they would like soul sleep or like the idea is that they just didn't need to worry. Like they're crying out, how long, oh Lord, can you put an end to this? We got loved ones. And, and And the Lord's like, here's a robe. It's all good. You're home. Don't worry. I'm your father. I love you. I've forgiven you. It's grace upon grace upon grace. No problems. But just chill out. Like kick back. Get on the couch. Put your feet up. Rest a little while. Like trust me is the idea. Like, I have this under control. Jesus then reassures them that he would intervene. Look at it. But he adds that he wouldn't act until when? The number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were was completed. Now, this is a confusing phrase because it seems to kind of just root itself in some type of like predestinated knowledge of Jesus would wait until all the martyrs he had determined were dead, and then he would do something about it. That's not quite what's being written or or implied. Like in your Bible, you'll notice, and I don't know what translations you have or don't. I, I, I teach out of the New King James, mainly because it's the one I grew up reading. But you'll notice that the words, the number of, is likely italicized. It's italicized. And when you see that in the Bible, understand the, the italicized, it's an indicator that that's not in the original manuscripts, but was added. Those words were added by the translators, hoping to add clarity to what was being articulated. Because again, we're, we're, we're moving from the most beautiful language ever, Koine Greek, to English. You know, like, there's some give and take. But these words aren't there. Now they add them, thinking it provides clarity. I think it does the opposite. In fact, if you remove these three words, I think the passage takes on a whole new level of significance and meaning. I'll read it for you. Jesus would say, they should rest a little while longer until both their fellow servants and their brethren 
who would be killed as they were was completed. Kind of stick out to you at all? Like the purpose of Jesus waiting to act on behalf of these people had nothing to do with like predestination or foreknowledge, but the fact that Jesus understood that the present trial these people were going through was designed and intended by him to make them complete. To do something in them. To refine them. He's like, I'm not, I'm not intervening until they're complete because this trial's not on accident. The trial's not without meaning. I've allowed these things, yes, for big purposes, but for specific reasons. To reprove and to refine. The same reasons that we go through trial, that we go through tribulation, that we go through suffering. It's not Jesus trying to knock us down. It's the fire being turned up so that the dross rises so that we become pure and holier and more in his image and likeness. And Jesus is like, yo, here's a robe, chill out. I'm going to intervene, but not until the moment that what they're going through has done its job, till they're completed, till they're fulfilled. And it's at that point, I'll call them home. Like, always understand that death, death doesn't reveal a martyr. Death only reveals if you were a martyr. It reveals the person. It doesn't make the person. Verse 12. I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Like in context, this is some type of a global rumbling. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. (laughs) Phraseology we wouldn't use, describing the color of the sun, John is actually literally saying that the the, the sun, when you looked at it, it was as black as a satchel made of hair. (laughs) That's what he's saying. Now, getting into Roman times, that would have been understood because there was a common satchel, carrying bag, that was actually made of black goat hair. It was from the area of Cilicia. It was called a Cilicium. So this is what John is seeing and describing. Black as sackcloth of hair would be, it's as black as that common bag you all, you all use and rock. The moon, he says, became like blood, which is no doubt a reference to the moon you know, becoming a reddish color. The stars of heaven, the word heaven is the, the, the expanse of the sky, fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it's shaken by a mighty wind. And again, in the, the late part of the harvest, late figs, would be really ready to fall off, right? So a mighty wind would shake them all. So what John is saying is there's a large number of the stars of heaven falling down to the earth. He says, then the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up or it's separated. It, It was severed and every mountain and island was moved out of its place or, or set into motion. You know, ultimately... There are two ways that scholars interpret what John is seeing taking place with the opening of the sixth seal. There are some who read into the text assuming that John is witnessing some type of man-made nuclear event. I can understand that. I, though, fall into the other camp that believes John is witnessing instead a very real, supernatural, cosmic disturbance on the earth. And I'll explain why I think that's the case. The proof is what follows. Look at verse 15. In response to these things, what happens? 
And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, so the military men, the mighty men, every slave and free man, hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains. So this is hap- something is happening on earth that causes everyone to run for cover. Specifically in the caves. It's cataclysmic. It's massive. Again, odd if it was man-made, the reaction might not be the same. But because it's global and it's cosmic, what do they say? They, 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 they hide themselves. They say to the mountains, the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from, what? from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. So there is an awareness of those on earth that what's happening is not normal. That this is something cataclysmic and divine. Something supernatural to it. Amazingly, while everyone, irrespective of wealth or class, realizes they are experiencing the wrath of the Lamb, it's sad, but explainable really, not not shocking, that the desire of people experiencing this judgment is what? It's avoidance and not repentance. And again, I mean, this is just consistent with with what humanity's always been, right? We hide. Adam and Eve in the garden sought to hide from the presence of God. And this moment, sinful man seeks to avoid a destiny with Jesus. In light of the fact that the great day of his wrath has come, humanity here cries out with a simple question. And, and this is kind of where we'll leave the chapter, but it sets the stage for what comes. They see all this stuff happening. They've lived through all of this cataclysmic judgment they're at this point and what's the what's the who is able to stand (laughs) the answer is actually simple friend the only reason that any of us will ever be able to stand on such a day is that jesus has already stood for us by taking upon himself the wrath of god that was meant for our sin and transgression that's really the application to it the particulars Who is able to stand? Who is able to make it through this? Who is able to thrive in this? Well, it's actually that question is then answered in the next chapter because John will take a break and we'll go into answering that question. Who is able to stand? Well, John will tell us. Now, in closing, I want to place this chapter very quickly into a much larger context. I think this is important. Again, these judgments of God are poured out onto the world Because Jesus has taken the scroll and is opening the seals. Jesus, who's already been described for us as the lamb who had been unjustly slain. It is Jesus who is judging the world of her sin and rebellion through these things. I know it's brutal. I know it's difficult to imagine. But this is the future destiny for a fallen world. And and you know, The reason that this point needs to be made is that, and I think it's sad, but in the church, the modern church's desire to be friendly with the world, you know, we fail to present this side of Jesus. Yes, Jesus died for the sin of the world. But the day will come when Jesus will judge the world of sin. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We are looking into the future, not to know the future, but to know the one who holds the future. We're seeing Jesus ravage the world. A world that he had come to save. 
but a world that he must now and his righteousness judge. Like in the end, your interactions with Jesus as either a savior or a judge will really boil down to whether or not you've accepted what he did on your behalf at Calvary. Like either Jesus took the wrath of God upon himself for your sins, or you'll stand one day in judgment experiencing the wrath of God on your own. And we've looked into the future and those experiencing it say what? Who is able to stand? Like it's really your call. You see, all of these things we're reading are part of God's will. Like these things are going to happen. And yet, I should also add, we know they're on hold. Why? Why aren't these things happening? Why hasn't the deceiver been revealed and the war follow and pestilence and economic collapse? Like, why hasn't all of these things happened? Why hasn't they? They're still in a scroll. They've still been sealed. They're still waiting for Jesus to come take it right now. Why? Well, according to 2 Thessalonians 2, we're told that the only thing, quote, restraining the loosing of the first seal and therefore the arrival of the Antichrist and all that would follow is what? It is the work of the Holy Spirit presently through his church. You see, once the church is removed from this earth, what is restraining has been removed. The first domino will be pushed and all of these things will be set into motion. A chain reaction of events will will occur, bringing about a final judgment. And you know, it's a shame. But we live in a day when our secular society is tolerant of everyone with the exception of Christians. It's the one group. In fact, people will argue, and and we've heard it this week, haven't we? Last few. People will argue that the one group of people that are prohibiting progress towards a more equitable world are the followers of Jesus. These Christians. The truth is there is a contingency of our fellow citizens who want Christians and mainly Christian influence taken out of academia, removed from corporate America, and no longer allowed in our politics. Well, I close this way. To the world, I would be very careful what you wish for. For the day is coming, the day is coming, when their wish We don't want these Christians and their influence in our society. We want them gone. Okay. There'll be a day that we'll say sayonara. And we'll be gone. There is a day when the church and our influence in this world will be removed. And the events of Revelation 6 are what happens as a result. So be careful what you wish for. So Father, Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen.